We've been for months just diving into the Gospels and enjoying the opportunity to look at the questions that Jesus asked. And if we ask those questions of ourselves, uh, how do we grow? What, how, do, how do we become different people by hearing the words that Jesus spoke in a, in a new and fresh way to us? And so we've looked at a lot of familiar stories, and we're going to again today. Um, but, but today, our story is going to revolve around one word, and, and the question revolves around one word. And, uh, <clears throat> and it's a word that's a big deal in our, in our culture today. A word that's a big deal in our um, in our uh, inner inner lives and our interpersonal lives, and it's one that we don't like to talk about. And that word is condemn. All right. And so what what we're going to use when I'm going to use that word a whole bunch of times today. Um, and and when we talk about being condemned or feeling condemnation, what we're really talking about, okay at least for our purposes today and biblically, um, is, is to reject, right, um, or, or to consider worthy of punishment. So, so that's, that's, our, that's our starting point, right? Really, really uh, upbeat spring message. Um, word to, to work with today. But no, for, for real, where, where we get to, um, I'm just putting this in your mind right away because I want you to kind of be stirring as to how it feels when you see that word, when you think about uh, condemnation, when you think about um, which side maybe in your life you've been on at various points of feeling condemned or maybe looking on another in that way. Okay, so the story comes from John 8, but what's really important is what happens in John 7. We like to set up the, uh, the culture and the, and the story behind the story that's always happening. So we're going to jump right into a little Hebrew world, and then we're going to get um, to looking at this within our own lives. What you have to know is that in John 7, we are in the middle of um, one of the big seven festivals, okay, of Hebrew, of, of the Jewish people. All right, so there were seven festivals throughout the year. This was not uncommon for religions of any sort um, that celebrated, usually somehow celebrated or asked for God's providence in the growing seasons. That's how most festivals were kind of organized around. Um, and, and this was no different. So, so this is called the Festival of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, and, and what it was is it was organized around the harvesting season, okay? Um, this was a time to thank God and to ask, to thank God for God's provision and to ask God for more provision, right? Um, it was the final feast of the year at the end of the fall. And so what this was, was the, the fall was um, the dry season. The winter was the rainy season. And so this was a time for God's people to cry out and say, God, we need you to send water to rain and uh, nourish our fields so that the crops might grow well this winter, okay? And so the end of the dry season is where we're at. And the dry season in Israel is dry, okay? We are talking about dusty dirtiness everywhere during the dry season. And so there is this excitement about what the waters will come and do, all right? And so, so this whole um, eight days, what people would do is they would trust God's provision. They built these little shelters. They were called sukkots. We talked about this before on multiple occasions, um, but it was like a, a huge camping festival. So out in all of the streets, um, people would come out and they would build these little, these little shacks, these small little um, like, like shelters, tents, and they would sleep in them for eight days, all right? And they, that would remind people 
of how God had cared for them uh, during the Exodus when they had no home. So, so they slept in tents, essentially. They slept in shelters, reminding them that God cares for us even when we were homeless. So God's going to care for us now. God's going to nourish us. God's going to provide. Um, so there's lots of celebrating, lots of rituals, lots of teaching um, in the scriptures every single day about rain, about water, about physical thirst, and about spiritual thirst. This all became connected during the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? So the last day, the priest would go through this uh, processional and, and he would take a pitcher of water in one hand and wine on the other, both of which were representative of kind of the spirit of God and nourishment and, and goodness. And, and together uh, he would pour the water and the wine down. By the way, there's so many implications for the crucifixion of Jesus when the water and the wine or the water and the blood run and Jesus calling his calling the wine his blood. But that's a totally different message, but you can figure it out later if you want to do some interesting connections. But anyways, the priest would pour this pitcher of water and this pitcher of wine down. And while he would do that, it would be a reminder of God's provision. And others would cry out around the altar, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means God, save us, we pray, meet our needs. It was all about God providing. So that's the story. That's the background. And in John 7, there's this little thing that happens during all of this water festival and water ceremonies. We're told on the last and greatest day of the festival, when all this happened, this is John uh, 7:37, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. We talked about that, I think maybe, I don't know, a year ago, um, when Jesus said pretty much, I am the living water, right? Jesus claims in the midst of this festival, come to me and drink, right? So, so this is a pretty radical statement, a pretty big statement. Um, Jesus is bringing people toward him to meet their needs, inviting others to come on a day where they talked about how God was the living water, how, how people needed God's nourishment. And he says, come to me. Um, again, it doesn't make the priests happy at all because this is considered uh, shifting the focus and they get really upset. This is happening every single week. The priests get upset, right? Um, Jesus is becoming too much of a central figure. Some are thinking he's a prophet in the crowd. Others are even thinking that he might be the Messiah. And how, when you are a priest, how do you undermine someone like that? What do you do, right? You find a way to publicly disqualify them, right? Because if the crowds are getting behind, then you have to figure out a way to turn the crowd. So, so what they do is they try to find a way to reject, to get the public to reject Jesus or to, to find Jesus guilty of something, worthy of, of punishment. And so as they're discussing what to do, this is all leading up to the moments that we're going to talk about in a, in a second. But as they're discussing this, there's a really important verse that helps us understand an undergirding theme for what's about to happen in John 8. And it's, it involves Nicodemus. And you know why Nicodemus is great? Nicodemus is great because he is in the opposition class to Jesus. He's a Pharisee, but he's seeking truth. So this is a great image because it gives us a glimpse into the, into the hope of, of the gospel, right? Um, Jesus is, or um, Nicodemus is, is one who otherwise would be in opposition, but he actually has an open heart and an open spirit. And he wants to know more about this Jesus. And so like anyone who seeks truth, they are welcomed into that fold as they seek. So this Pharisee becomes an ally of Jesus in the scriptures. So in John 7, we're still in John 7. Finally, uh, let's see, uh, the temple folks wanted the guards to arrest Jesus after he says this. 
Um, and, and they come back and the Pharisees see that they didn't arrest Jesus and they say, why didn't you arrest him? And in verse 46, the, uh, the temple guards say, no one has ever spoken the way this man does. The guards said, Pharisees say, you mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted, have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob who knows nothing of the law. Interesting how law obsessed they are. We're going to see that over and over again this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law, so he focuses on the law again, since that's what they brought up, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? So Nicodemus is the first one to say, you know, y- you guys, you're, y'all being maybe a little focused on the condemnation part. Like, you seem really quick to draw your judgments. Shouldn't we ask more questions and seek more truth first? And here's what happens. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. And you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. They completely skirt the question. He says, does our law allow a man or condemn a man without first hearing more? And they say, what, are you from Galilee too? They, they have no interest in actually responding to the question because when people are bent on condemnation, they deflect everything else. They don't want to consider honest questions. They want to condemn without critical thought. So we have this undergirding attitude coming in to the story. So the feast is finishing, all right? It's, it's been eight days. Everybody goes back for the final night. There has been lots of camping. There has been lots of celebrating. There has been lots of wine drinking. And when these things happen, sometimes you can imagine that people wind up in tents that they didn't start in with regrets the next morning. And we'll leave it there, right? Um, And so the priests know that this is going to happen, we assume. And so they are looking for those who are on on the walk of shame the next morning and uh, living in downtown Newark, or close to downtown Newark, I can say that um, it might, it, it's not necessarily hard to find uh, those sorts of things happening. But yeah, we're going to, that's a, a whole different conversation. So anyways, they find a woman in the middle of this who fits their plan perfectly. They find a woman who they have caught guilty of adultery. Okay. So let's get into this story, because it's really important that this story is placed on the tail end of everything else that happened. And that's important because some of the earliest manuscripts, they, they shift this story around exactly where it's at. But this is the most, um, the most frequent point for where this story is placed in, uh, in the book of John. They all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn. So the next day, first day after all of this, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. It's really important to know that there are multiple layers of condemnation at work here. They want to find a way to trap Jesus. And in the midst of it, they use this woman 
who they are more than willing to condemn as well. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. We're just going to sit there at that moment. Think about this experience with this woman and Jesus in this high tension moment. What is Jesus writing on the ground? (laughs) It's a question scholars have asked a long time. Um, I actually don't think it's a huge secret once you dive in a little bit more to where this story is falling and what the festival has just been. What happens when... So, so the water throughout this entire festival has, has been um, compared to the Spirit of God. So verses, we know for a fact that verses like um, Jeremiah 2.13, you have dug for yourselves cisterns that are broken that cannot hold water, right? You have forsaken the living water. These are, these are phrases that are used during this festival to say, come back to the heart of Jesus or the heart of God, which looks like living water, right? So Jesus is writing something in the dust. What happens, by the way, when all the water is gone? When you have an oasis that dries up, when you have a rainy season that ends, what what happens? What are you left with? You're left with so much dust, right? When water is no longer available, it's just dusty everywhere. It's dry and it's lifeless, right? So it's no surprise that Jesus in the middle of of a conversation about a water festival that used all sorts of passages about the Lord being living water and people attempting to dig their own and go their own way, that he has in mind maybe another passage that would have almost certainly been read during the past week by the Pharisees themselves. And that is this, and Melanie uh, can go ahead and put this up. It's Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Look at a passage like that. What do you think Jesus is writing in the, in the dirt? <gasps> He's writing the names of the accusers, right? Now, we can't be sure of that for, for certain. We, we can't prove, but the context is compelling, and here's why it's so important. Think about the implications. Jesus is suggesting that these accusers, the ones who are here, wanting to destroy this woman, all right, are every bit and more disconnected from God than the sinner in the middle of their circle who stands accused because their hearts are set on condemnation and they are using Jesus in the process, right? Condemnation of Jesus, condemnation of this woman, that, that might get too, a little too close to home, right? No one ever uses Jesus in their attempt to condemn other people. That would be ridiculous. No. But here's the really, really interesting thing. Jesus bends down. He writes on the ground. He says, those who are without sin cast the first stone. You can be the first to throw a stone. And what we learn is that those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left. 
I want to sit with a couple of interesting things as we move into what it means to be condemned and what Jesus seems to think about it all. Have you noticed that in this story, the stoners are uh, the would-be stoners? They're they're actually not told that they're wrong in what they see or claim. Have you noticed it? I mean, Jesus, uh, he he doesn't he doesn't critique that part. He doesn't say, hey, this woman hasn't done anything. He doesn't say, she can do whatever she wants. You, you notice that, right? And, and this is interesting about when we are tempted to look on others with a spirit of condemnation. Um, what, what, what he critiques is not the fact that they say she was breaking the law. What he critiques is the heart posture that they needed to condemn her that they needed to hold their power over her, that they wanted to define her by this moment while their hearts were arguably much darker. Jesus never lets people do that to others. Because here's what happens in us when condemnation takes a root. We love to rationalize, and the best way to rationalize, this one works so well, so well to justify us, is to say, I know I'm right on this. And the moment that we know we're right then we are justified in our condemnation of others. And Jesus stands there protecting the one that you've decided is now the problem and says, I don't care if you are right or wrong. Get away from her. This is really important in a world that is becoming increasingly obsessed with condemning other people. We are moving in such a direction that as long as we are right, there is no holds barred in what we can do or say to another, the ways that we can write another off. And what we find that that does is it moves us further and further from the heart of Jesus, which is set against condemnation. You know, the, the challenge with looking, and we're, got, we're about to pivot here in, in a different way, but right now we're, we're sitting with the Pharisees. We're sitting with the Pharisees who have looked on, who have said, ah, we need somebody to cast stones at, and we found someone. Whenever we talk about how, how Jesus calls us not to judge or not to condemn, or he, he, he resists that, the question that always comes up is, it feels complicated because evil is a real thing, Right? And Christians calling out evil is a real thing, right? So what do we do with that? Andy Crouch is the former executive editor of Christianity Today and, um, and the Leadership Journal, which was a journal for pastors, and a brilliant, brilliant um, thinker and spiritual formation writer. And he writes about gestures that Christians sometimes make in the broader culture, that Christians sometimes need to make in the broader culture. And one of those gestures is condemning, okay? And he argues that there is a time and place for that gesture. There is a time when condemning of ideologies is necessary and important, right? Um, white supremacy needs to be outrightly condemned. Any ideologies or actions that demean the sacredness of all human life ought to be condemned. Corporation policies that pollute poor communities so that they can make more money and increase their profit margin, they, th that, those things need to be condemned, right? Industries that increase our obsession with violence, industries that lead to the exploitation of women and the exploitation of, of anyone, these things need to be condemned by Jesus' people. Yeah. But then Crouch pivots and he says, but here's what's happened. And I think this is so brilliant. 
He says, in so many cases, Christians have taken a gesture and they have turned it into a posture. So instead of understanding that there are times and places to speak truth, specifically to challenge um, those who are exploiting and oppressing others, he said what ends up happening is Christians begin to walk around as people of condemnation. So wherever they look, all they see is something to criticize and condemn. Everywhere they walk, right? Everywhere they go, that, that their hearts are now postured toward condemnation, which is very different. If you walk around ready to condemn everything and everyone out there that rubs you the wrong way, uh, you'll never develop the heart of Christ. Uh, by the way, Jesus showed, showed us, this. we should be clear about this, that even as a gesture, <laughs> uh, condemning a person is never appropriate. There are sometimes ideologies, attitudes, those should be shut down. But condemning a person, deciding a person is worthy of punishment or rejection, that is not what Jesus ever gives us permission to do. Um, and, and lest you think uh, that you're above all of this... <laughs> like some of us might be tempted to think, right? Um, COVID has brought out so many fresh opportunities to embrace the fine, subtle art of condemnation. Uh, Nadia Boltz-Weber wrote recently um, this, uh, she's, she's author and, and pastor. Um, she wrote this, this prayer, and it's, it's a sarcastic prayer, obviously. But she wrote this prayer, Lord, what will we judge others for when we can no longer judge them for wearing masks? Help us find the next thing to make ourselves feel righteous. We always have something that we can judge others for. And for everybody, it's different. But we can always find something that's worth condemning, especially if we're exhausted, frustrated, or fed up with something. We have to learn that Jesus opposes attitudes of condemnation in any and every way when they look to reject a human being or consider that a human being is worthy of ultimate punishment in any way. So let's move now because what we've done is we've reflected on the position of the Pharisees, the condemners. But what we're going to do is that many times we feel like we might be on the other side in the middle of the circle. So I just want to reflect on that for a little bit. Um, because the radical beauty of this story and the real question that Jesus is about to ask is, is still in front of us. So, so let's go back to the book of John and the story and uh, pick it up at verse 9. Well, let's, let's lead up to it. So Jesus says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone. And he stoops down and he, and he writes on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go now and leave your life of sin. Note the moment that comes after the crowd is gone, right? It's an intimate moment, this woman shaking, knowing that her life sentence was nearly just made. Um, full of shame, surrounded by men who would have gladly participated in violence against her. And we're told this, until only Jesus was left. <laughs> um, 
Boy, if that's not a phrase, it's worth holding on to when we feel the condemnation of others. Till only Jesus was left. When Jesus says, has no one condemned you? And the actual answer is, well, yes, they wanted to, but Jesus stood in the gap. Has no one condemned you? They didn't decide. They didn't decide that she wasn't worthy of condemnation. They were just (laughs) held accountable for their attitudes by Jesus because Jesus made it impossible for them to do the work that they wanted to do. I want us to think about how common condemnation is and where you have felt or experienced it in your life. Because condemnation feels like such a big word that sometimes maybe we want to say, well, I've never really experienced that. But, but sometimes it's within, right? Sometimes it's us knowing or feeling like we have never quite been able to make God happy, right? That there's this, this sense that I'm never quite good enough and what God looks on when he sees me is all of my mistakes because every day I seem to fall short, right? And so, so or, or maybe it's that I have my own expectations that I can't quite live up to. And I feel like I'm just, you know, here we are talking theology, right? And some of you are just trying to survive the day. And even right now, you're like, is this even relevant? Like, I'm just trying to survive today. I'm trying to be a single parent. I'm trying to get my job done, put in the hours. I'm trying to keep my house. I'm trying to love my family. I'm trying to follow Jesus and make time to pray because I know that's important. But oh my gosh, it just all feels like a burden. And I can never possibly live up to the expectation of even surviving today let alone like being a great Christian. And you need to hear the words of Jesus here. You need to hear Jesus say, I do not condemn you. Some of you, it's society's structures where you look and we've got these Instagram lives that are intended to show that we're happy and healthy and wealthy and everything else. And you just know that you can't possibly live up to that. And you're not as successful at your job as you thought you'd be, or um, as, as you're not making the amount of money that people say that you should make by the time you reach 52 years old, whatever the case might be. Right. And, and you just, you just feel that, that you're just, you're falling short. Um, It happens all over the place within us. Sometimes our churches have, have, have convinced us that unless um, we have kind of righteousness that looks like this, 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 and this, then we're not really accepted. It comes in all sorts of ways. But when that, that condemnation comes, it paralyzes us, it isolates us, and it pushes us further away from connection. So fear and shame become these leading emotions in our lives, right? And they cause us to live smaller lives than what we're actually meant to live that are less true to who God designed us to be. Condemnation, it convinces us that our past is what determines our future, right? Um, It says that we're the sum of, of all of our failures and that we have to do better. Here's the kicker. We have to do better in order to be loved. We have to do better in order to be loved. And interpersonally, honestly, it just... Any attitude of condemnation, whether it's self-condemnation or condemnation from others, um, it keeps us from being able to be honest and have honest conversations. If we feel like every conversation is dangerous, if someone is about to judge or write us off, it feels like we just can't be honest and real in our conversations. This is such a big deal. So Jesus, when Jesus says, I do not condemn you to this woman, 
He is saying, I want something to do with you. He's saying, I will not reject you. You are not worthy of punishment. I want something to do with you. I don't want you to be paralyzed. I don't want you to be isolated. I don't want you to be pushed away. I want to receive you is the message that Jesus is giving here. And I'm not sure most Christians get this. I, I, I think most of us on some level, and, and unfortunately there's a lot of cultural junk that's mixed up in this with, with um, kind of how, how we've interpreted what it means that to receive the good news, but that, that we don't believe that God's okay with us. We don't actually believe that God wants to be near near us or that, that God simply wants to walk with us. We, we think we're kind of low-level condemned all the time, but thankfully for Jesus, like God's willing to overlook it. And, and that's taking theology and scripture and, and kind of twisting it a little bit um, as if God's looking down and just only shaking his head, constantly disappointed at us in every unkind or impure thought that runs through our heads. Um, and the, and every now and then when we get it right, that's when God says, come here, you little guy, you know, and, but check the language. This is so important. Jesus looks at this woman and he does not say, neither do I condemn you if you go and leave your life of sin. There is no if, all right? Jesus doesn't say, I won't condemn you as long as you leave your life of sin. Here's how radical grace is and radical forgiveness is. In this moment, if she walks away and does the same thing the next day and she encounters Jesus, what Jesus will say is the same thing. I do not condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. These are two independently valid statements. Of course, Jesus wants us to walk away from destructive decisions that hurt us and that distance ourselves from God and that hurt others. Of course, that will always be the case. But you know what else will always be the case? Jesus's message of, I am not condemning you. I want to receive you. And that is independent of our performance completely or else, at least according to the entire early church, Jesus and Paul, our faith is meaningless. And we can just go back to Old Testament theology that's based completely on the law. But if you actually trust Jesus, then you, are, you have no choice but to agree that you are not condemned, even if you fall short over and over and over again. And this is not cheap grace. It doesn't give you freedom to just keep doing whatever you want selfish, selfish, selfishly. It's the thing that transforms us. That lack of condemnation is what brings us into a new way of living and being in the world and relating to other people. It's that truth that transforms us. And it formed the early church too. You can see it in Romans 8. Um, last passage we'll throw up on the, on the screen for you. Um, Therefore, there is now no condemnation, Paul writes, for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's talked about how people just can't possibly faithfully follow the law. And he's saying, you can't follow the law. You're going to end up falling short. You're going to end up sinning. You're going to end up breaking it. But guess what? There's no condemnation because through Christ, the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So you are set free. Rest in the love that Jesus has and in the grace that Jesus has given. I really like that near the end there um, in verse 3. What he says is what Jesus does is he, Jesus condemns sin. If, you, if Jesus is going to condemn anything, he's going to condemn sin. He's going to condemn the power that pulls people away from him. Um, 
just beautiful, beautiful imagery. It's like, it's like saying, if Jesus is going to kill anything, he's going to kill death. <laughs> you know, if Jesus is going to condemn anything, he's going to condemn the thing that condemns us. It's beautiful. So when we get this, friends, when we understand truly deeply that we're not condemned, we will be transformed and made new. When forgiveness like that takes root in us, we will walk away changed. Um, our failures aren't going to paralyze us anymore from moving toward God and others. And our worth is going to remain constant each week, no matter how well we do or how much we live up to whatever the standards or society or ourselves or our churches put on us. <laughs> um, and we see both of these things in conjunction, outside of the circle, center of the circle. When we are in the center of the circle like this woman, and when we hear the words of Jesus like that, it will change who we are the next time we find ourselves potentially on the outside of the circle with stones ready to throw. Just one encouragement. I want you to think real quick about the most free people that you know in Christ. The ones who are at peace the most with God. The ones who live lightly with Jesus well. The ones who are free from condemnation because of who they are in Jesus. I don't mean the loudest ones. I mean the deepest ones. And I want you to think about how they look at other people. And you're going to find that there is a connection between a life that has understood that they are not condemned and a life that can look on others with love rather than condemnation. These two things are inseparable. And so Jesus says, has no one condemned you? And we get to walk out today as we follow Jesus saying, no one. Um, there's so much grace for you and for your neighbors. And in a world that we live in right now, we just have to, have to, have to practice it more than ever before. As we head into the coming weeks, the coming months as a church, as we have hard conversations, seeking to love our neighbors as best as possible, as we continue to live in a really divisive world, we must be people who refuse to be condemners of another human being because we know the power of grace in our lives. All right, let's pray. Father, uh, we trust you in these moments, even though some of this stuff feels like uh, it might not even, like it might be hard to believe, like we might want to believe it with our head, but our, we still feel inadequate um, or we still have so much anger at those, those people out there. <sighs> Whatever the case might be, we, we trust you to work in us. We ask that you help us enter into a story like this. Um, ready to receive your grace. If we need to hear it again for the first time, speak your grace to us for the first time again. If we need to learn how to love our neighbors again, challenge us, convict us, so that we might be people who represent the character that you showed in this moment well. Help us to walk toward you, to walk away from the things that destroy, but to know that our place is not to stone others, even when we see their brokenness. Amen.